If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. If you'll find your Bibles, you can turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 38 through 44. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. 100 years ago today, on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour, World War I ended, the war to end all wars. 17 million people died, including on this Veterans Day, 10 million soldiers. Had it really been the war to end all wars, then perhaps we could have salvaged something from it. But two decades later, Hitler marches into Poland and starts an even bigger war, after which 60 million people would die, or 3% of the world's population, and Europe would lie in ruins. Nobody called World War II the war to end all wars, but we did build a place to try to sit down with world leaders and talk each other out of war by founding the United Nations. Then came Korea and Vietnam and a series of wars that we learned to call by more pleasant, even noble-sounding names. Operation Urgent Fury in Grenada. Operation Just Cause in Panama. Operation Desert Storm in Iraq, Operation Restore Hope in Somalia, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, probably should have been called Operation Never Ending, and of course Operation Iraqi Freedom, in which victory was declared, mission accomplished in 2003, just a few weeks after it began. 
There have been at least 194 armed conflicts from 1945 to the turn of the 21st century. So why would I bring this up in church? Because nobody wants war to end forever more than the soldiers I have known. And General Patton was right. War is hell. It's hell on earth. The church doesn't really need to frighten people with threats of eternal punishment because our relentless capacity to systematically kill our own kind, which is unique in the animal world, is hell on earth and continues unabated, albeit now with greater distance and technological sophistication because you can sit in a nice office now and you can drop bombs on people with the click of a computer mouse and then go home and have a nice glass of Chardonnay. So what on earth does this have to do with the poor widow's might or scribes and Pharisees who like to walk around in long robes and be fussed over by everybody? Well, as a matter of fact, war grows from both of these. Poverty, the greatest driver of violence in the world, and the narcissism of those in power, which perpetuates unjust economic systems all over the world, built to keep the poor from rising up to take from those who have more than they will ever need and give it to their own children who cry for food in the night. And then you add religion to the mix with its penchant for telling people they need to pay to pray and that even though things are bad now, they'll be better in heaven. And so you've got yourself a story, an old, old story about a man named Jesus who dared to tell the truth about all of this and then died at the hands of the state. To set this passage in context, it is late in Mark's gospel at the beginning of what we call Passion Week, but what I think we should call the week when it all came apart. Two days earlier, Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple where he does something I thought when I was a kid involved janitorial work. He cleansed the temple. I thought, that's nice, that's nice. But what he really did was attack the temple, an act that by itself would have been sufficient grounds to get him executed. He drove out those who were selling and those who were lending, overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Doves? Why doves? They're lovely, albeit not terribly smart birds. Because doves were what the poor could afford to buy for sacrifices. So not only does the temple function to make the produce and other items you bring to it kosher for a fee, but it also provided sacrificial animals in all price ranges. Down on your luck, have I got a dove for you. Just think about this. First, you were expected to pay to get inside, and then you needed to shop the marketplace for items to make it possible for you to be observant, to restore your relationship to God. This is a one-stop justification shop. When we imagine the temple, I think we, we think a very ornate, serene place, lovely, where scribes and Pharisees sat to pray and the sounds of rabbis singing out their liturgies of devotion wafted over the heads of the devout and all that. But I suspect that what you really heard when you first entered the temple, especially during Holy Week, was a 
cacophony of sounds, a, a din, a low roar of people haggling, arguing, and exchanging money. The temple was not just a religious institution, it was an economic one as well. It had hundreds of employees, and Jerusalem was a company town. It operated much like a central bank and treasury. And where did all the money go? Well, the scribes and the priests received a cut from every temple sacrifice, and they received a five-shekel tax on every firstborn child brought to the temple. You remember the story we read right after Christmas about how Jesus taken to the temple as an infant for the purification ritual? According to the Torah, quote, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. I'm not sure about females, but that's another sermon. And so mom and dad offered a sacrifice for Jesus according to the law. And what was it they sacrificed? A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. What do you think that cost? Probably more than his parents could afford. Other services in the temple involved requiring offerings, which is an oxymoron because if it's required, it's not an offering. And the priests got so rich from all these fees that they started loaning money, which meant they were also in a position to foreclose on property if the debts were not paid. Oh, that's where they got the meaning of the term devouring widows' houses. When Jesus is said to have overturned the tables of the money changers, he's attacking an operation that has a long history in the temple of conducting business on behalf of wealthy Jerusalem families. They were, if you will, the street representatives of moneyed banking interests. They could charge up to 50% interest, sort of like payday lenders for the rich. When Jesus was said to overturn the seats of those who sold doves, even the price of doves had been raised beyond the reach of most poor people. In fact, according to one scholar, Simeon, the son of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, had once criticized the inflated pricing of sacrificial doves. There was a big debate about this, and as a result of his protest, they lowered the price by 99%, and still the merchants made money. Echoing two great prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus reminds us that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all people, but it has become a den of robbers. According to the account of the so-called cleansing of the temple in Mark, there's an often overlooked line in which Jesus, quote, would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Anything is the word we use to translate the Greek word skeos, which means vessel. Perhaps these are vessels used for water or oil, for purification or something else essential to the religious rituals being performed for a fee. That is, Jesus did not just act out in the temple. He interfered with the operation of the temple staging a physical as well as a verbal protest. It was nonviolent direct action. When he comes back the next day, he's teaching on some controversial topics and he's winning all the debates over the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, and he's on a roll and the crowd loves it. Then he turns his attention to the scribes 
the temple lawyers at some length, describing them, I'm paraphrasing now, as proud peacocks who love to strut around in long robes, reveling in their privileges, to be greeted in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and at dinners. So in an honor-shame society, they trade their power for honor, and Jesus shames them for it. That's when the line that sets up the whole story of the widow's mite jumps off the page. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say long prayers. What does that mean? Well, when someone died, the lawyers would swoop in and help manage the deceased person's estate. Because, as we all know, these matters are too complicated to be left to a woman. There, there, dear, we can handle this for you. Yes, we can. On top of that, they said long prayers. And I'm here to tell you, and I think I speak for Lori on this as well, God is as bored by long prayers as you are. <laughs> Especially when it sounds like the person praying just enjoys the sound of his own voice more than feeling called to speak truth to power. Religion is chronically afflicted by long-windedness, so saith the preacher. <laughs> but never mind. That's because talking for a very long time as if everyone really loves listening to you and then frequently interrupting people is a form of power. Always has been. Last but not least, Jesus sat over against or can be translated opposite the treasury. Actually what he's doing, that could be God calling, what he's doing is he is people watching on the side of the temple that's called the Court of Women. As you will not be surprised to learn, there was an entrance for men only, those who wore the long robes, and another for women and men who occupied a lower rung on the social ladder. And outside the entrance of the women's court are 13 flute-shaped chests into which people literally through their offerings, sometimes actually announcing the amount of their gift as they threw it in. Now this is people watching at its best. If it was a large sum, someone could give and also boast about giving simultaneously, saying, as I imagine our supreme leader might, this gift I'm making is really huge, huge probably the greatest offering in the history of temple offerings. <laughs> so the rich could give out of their abundance and still have a lot left over, but when a poor widow came and put two small copper coins in, Jesus compares these two kinds of giving, saying, to quote the Greek more literally, for the rich threw out of their abundance, but she threw out of her poverty. How poor was she? She's identified with the Greek word, Tochoi, which designates the poorest of the poor, those who are reduced to begging. When Jesus says to the disciples, truly I say to you, which means, listen up, this is important. She gave more than all the others, for they've contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, and this is crucial. She has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. As you know, this text is often used, and is being used as I speak, on Stewardship Sunday, which just happens to be today. 
by the way. So if I was a real minister, I'd be going on and on this morning about how the widow is a model for giving in the church. Well, not in the amount she gave, mind you. Takes more than two mites to run a church. Ha, ha, ha. But about her amazing generosity and devotion and sacrifice, that mighty widow and her mighty mites. And the preacher would say, if this poor widow can give out of her poverty, surely most of you can do better than to give so little out of your abundance. Can I get an amen? Mm -hmm. This is not, not, I repeat, not what this text is about. This is a text about the ongoing exploitation of the poor by the temple elites. Only, only that's what it means, and I mean also the elites of this and every age. So how do we know this? Well, for starters, Jesus says nothing to commend the widow for what she did. He says she gave all she had because that's what he observed her doing, not because he's recommending it. He says nothing about how the widow felt about what she gave, like deep down, my friends, when you give everything, you gain everything, or you know, some Joel Osteen nonsense. If, 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 if Jesus was really giving a sermon on the power of amazing generosity here, or helping Mayflower with a new pledge drive motto, he would have said, don't give until it hurts, give until it feels good. Perhaps more important, he could have picked a man who was poor, or simply a poor woman, but no, he picked a poor widow, which ties the lesson directly back to his denouncing the scribes for devouring widows' houses. This is a text about poverty and how people are trapped by it, even when they're trying to do the right thing. If this widow has put in all she had to live on, then now she has nothing to live on. And her creditors do not care how pious she is. They will foreclose on her even if her attendance at the temple is perfect. So let me ask you, let me just ask you, what would Jesus see if he were sitting opposite the temples of our time? What would, what would he see that keeps poor people poor? We had a candidate for governor that we rightly call our own who had the courage to say that oil and gas companies should pay their fair share of taxes so that we have enough money for our schools and our kids. And he loses to someone who never voted. But if he did, he would have voted against the teacher pay raise. He made subprime mortgage loans that devoured widows' houses. Maybe Jesus would sit across from the courthouse and watch the poor go inside to pay their court costs and fees so they can fund our criminal justice system. It used to be if you couldn't find a lawyer, one will be provided to you, Central American tenant. That's not true anymore. There aren't enough public defenders. Now if you can't afford unspecified fees as high as $1,000, they put you in jail and then they charge you by the day to stay there. For the widow, it's pay to pray. For the poor today, it's pay or stay. Or maybe Jesus would go into a pay, payday loan office, they're all over the place, and start turning over the tables of those who loan money at 300% interest. You claim to be doing this to help the poor? You're taking all that's left, all that someone has to live on. It's no different. 
Or maybe Jesus would sit across the hall from a midnight meeting of the Republicans who passed the worst tax bill in U.S. history last year in the dead of night without a single public hearing because they could. Giving the wealthiest Americans yet another huge tax break and pushing the deficit to a trillion dollars next year. We hate deficits, they've always said, especially if they're not our deficits, but We've got to help these people in long robes who are greeted in the marketplace and have the best seats at the Thunder game. As for the deficit, there's only one thing left to do. We've got to cut entitlement programs. That's all that's left, which is a bit like asking someone without a belt if they would tighten it. Maybe Jesus would sit outside of a health insurance company board meeting where people are trying to figure out how not to insure people with pre-existing conditions. And maybe Jesus would say, hey, it's me, Jesus, out here. You, you know, Jesus, the one you say you love, the reason for the season and all that. But, hey, I healed for free. Suffering and death are a pre-existing condition for all of us. Or maybe Jesus would sit down across the street from the Pentagon and just weep on this Veterans Day. 100 years to the day after the end of the war to end all wars. Jesus was a Jewish prophet like those who said we should beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and we should study war no more, but we still study it. We study it all the time in great universities. They're called war universities. We give it all the money it needs and we send our warriors to distant lands, often to keep the world safe for long robes doing business here. Meanwhile, those in long robes are not the ones who die. It's the husband of the widow who gets killed and now she's given a folded flag but she can't pay her rent or childcare because, well, nothing's free and besides, we've got a lot of long robes to pay for. The story of the widow's might is not a story about generosity. It's a story about economic injustice. We know because the Bible tells us so if we'll just study it. Sometimes I wonder, I really wonder how long those in long robes are going to allow churches to actually keep copies of the Bible inside, in the pews. You know, they let us read the Bible that's dangerous. They must think we're really stupid. Are we? I mean, being poor is hard enough. I don't think we should charge extra for it. I'm old enough to remember something called the War on Poverty. People say, have said, we lost it. We lost it. Poor you shall have with you always and all that. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we surrendered. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, 
a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.